Chapter 2, Part E, Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, Gerald Burney Smith, Editor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To inquire about volunteering, contact LibriVox.org. This reading is by John Shurman. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, Part E. Gerald Brenny Smith, Editor. Chapter 2, Part E. Why Theology Has Not Developed Parallel with the Presuppositions of Social Experience. While thus the influence of the presuppositions of social experience is to be traced in the development of doctrinal systems, it is also true that there has been no such complete parallelism in the development of theology and social institutions as might be expected. Theologies have not always been orthodox, but they have seldom reached wide acceptance when diverging widely. Furthermore, periods of intellectual and political progress have always been marked by distrust as well as transformation of theological systems. The reason for these discrepancies between the logical and the actual relation of theology to the social mind are not far to seek. Part A. The Influence of Philosophy In the first place, theology has always been checked in its response to the creative social forces by a tendency to become a philosophy. The history of theology on the one side may be described as a struggle between these dramatic conceptions in which men have endeavored to make real to themselves the significance of their religious beliefs and philosophy. Such a conflict was inevitable from the fact, already noted, that philosophy is both the product of the same social experience as theological thought and at the same time is a phase of that social mind with which theology has to reckon. In its earlier stages, theology was forced into conflict with systems of thought which undertook to organize Christianity in terms of some cosmological or metaphysical principle. Especially was this true in the case of the great contest lasting for centuries between Catholicism and Gnosticism. The Gnostic movement, strictly speaking, was not theological. Combining the cosmological idea of emanation and the theosophical idea of dualism, it undertook to embody in itself such elements of the New Testament as it could. Its success was great, and there resulted what might fairly be called a rival religion, which was Christian only in the sense that it embodied certain elements of Christianity in a synthetic philosophical schema covering all phases of human thought. In their struggle with this rival, the Christian thinkers, as has already been pointed out, strove to do two things. First, to maintain the supremacy of the messianic schema, which was involved in the baptismal symbol and regulia fidei. And second, to show forth the philosophical significance of such doctrines as were in process of formulation. That Catholicism conquered was due to many causes. But doubtless, as much as any to the fact that although cosmological significance was given to Christ, reconceived as Logos, the second person of the Trinity, 
the Catholic scheme of doctrine was not subjected to that worldview which was the basis of the Gnostic teaching. On one side, Catholicism protected itself by the criticism of the extravagant ideas of Gnosticism, and on the other side, by the appeal to that which had always been everywhere and by all believed. This latter appeal was, of course, not an answer to the claim of Gnosticism to be the true philosophy of religion, but it did succeed in making clear that Gnosticism was not the Christianity which was contained in the New Testament. Furthermore, in refusing to answer philosophical objections to Christianity by philosophical arguments and by concentrating attention upon its strictly theological elements, Catholicism accomplished two things. It preserved the theological elements which it had inherited and it repudiated a view of theology as of necessity adapting itself to current modes of thought at the expense of its own criteria. It has been inevitable, therefore, that in the same proportion as a philosophy has become identified with the strictly theological elements of a church system, the two should have been carried along together. A striking illustration of that is Thomas Aquinas, whose Christianized Aristotelianism thoroughly identified philosophical method and point of view with theological positions. The current struggle of the Roman Curia with modernism is an illustration of how a theology, which has grown rigid through the dogmatizing of philosophical concepts, fails to respond to the new presuppositions which condition the evolution of social experience and philosophy itself. But similar illustrations could be drawn from Lutheranism and Calvinism. Each of these great systems has suffered a hardening of the arteries of theology because of the introduction into it of philosophical concepts transformed into orthodoxy by ecclesiastical and political authority. In consequence, neither system responds readily to the modern mind. B the retarding influence of doctrinal orthodoxy. Thus we are brought to the second reason for the failure of theology to develop pari passu with social evolution. The philosophizing of theology might have been to a considerable extent rectified in the course of the development of Christianity had it not been rendered static by being transformed into authoritative orthodoxy. A student of church history does not need to be told how this process proceeded. Generally speaking, it may be said to have begun in an attempt at some adjustment of the inherited Christian faith to a philosophical mode of thinking. This was followed by a period of controversy in which the defenders of the inherited Regulia Fidei were forced to justify their position by the use of some philosophical concept. Thereupon there occurred the holding of a council which formulated the doctrine in dispute in accordance with the Regulia Fidei or creed and the philosophy of its defenders and then made the acceptance of its formularies the test of right belief. 
as the decisions of these councils were as a rule enforced by the state as well as by the penalty of excommunication from the church theology steadily grew less responsive to the changing social mind we see here the fundamental weakness of a doctrine which depends solely or chiefly upon authority it of necessity perpetuates philosophical and social survivals however serviceable it may have been to the age in which it was formulated however it may have functioned helpfully because of its participation in the dynamic presuppositions of the life of its day it grows incapable of service and helpfulness in ages of different character indeed we might almost say in the same proportion in which it did function well does its rigidity render it incapable of vital service to those communities which are dominated by different social minds for this if for no other reason there is imminent danger lest the essential and permanent values which orthodoxy expresses shall be lost to those who no longer accept the philosophy and no longer share in the social experience which orthodoxy has embodied in itself c the constructive task of theology yet this cannot obscure the fact which the history of the doctrine-making process discloses orthodoxy is the outcome of a process unhappily arrested by ecclesiasticism by which fundamental religious realities were mediated to religious needs of a given period by the use of the presuppositions of that period's social experience any theological reconstruction therefore that would be thoroughgoing and do for our age what the original creators of theology did for theirs must face two tasks first it must distinguish between the theological schema which came over from the messianic christianity of the primitive church and that philosophical construction which has built up by it as defense and explanation and second it must evaluate the schema itself in terms of religious efficiency this second is the primary task of today as long as it is neglected will theology be in distress christianity can never dominate our modern world by merely changing its philosophical element that is of course demanded but the fundamental need is that of dramatic analogies drawn from our dominant social mind by which religious thinking can satisfy their religious needs that longing for divine help which our intense and complicated life originates theology today as never before cannot be replaced by either psychology or philosophy the position which the theologian will take in the present moment of unrest will be very largely determined by his conception of the aim of theology if as many hold the purpose of theology is to give final and unchangeable formulations for religious experience and so to express religious truth that it shall be as statically absolute as metaphysical reality itself there is no appeal except that of orthodoxy itself to the authority of either councils the pope or an a priori belief in an infallible scripture 
It goes without saying that such an appeal will completely break with our modern world. If, on the other hand, the purpose of theology is held to be functional, and if it is an ever-growing approximation to ultimate reality through the satisfaction it gives to the ever-developing and changing religious needs of different periods, then theological method becomes, to a considerable extent, empirical and pragmatic. Theological reconstruction will seek, first of all, not philosophical means of adapting a theological schema to our modern world, but will rather reproduce the actual procedure of theology in its creative epochs. That is to say, as theology in such epochs has utilized the dynamic presuppositions conditioning all social activity in general, will it today seek to utilize such presuppositions as are now creative. Nor is this a difficult task. The theologian who approaches his problem from the point of view of social experience, rather than that of metaphysics, will recognize two presuppositions which are reconstituting our modern world. Evolution and creative democracy. Just how these two presuppositions can be used for theological reconstruction must be left to an honest and scientific methodology. The historical study of religion, like our own, is not content to deal only with facts and their relations. It seeks not only to discover the origins and to trace the course of development of Christian truths, it must also evaluate them. When one evaluates historically our heritage of doctrinal formulas, he will discover in them both form and content. The latter may have been recognized without reflection throughout the history of the church, but the doctrine-making process at last brought it into consciousness and systematic perspective. It is this fact that explains how it is that Christianity has always attempted to reproduce biblical materials. Such determination is not due merely to a belief in the inspiration of the scriptures. It is really due to the essential nature of Christianity itself. For the teaching and person of Jesus as seen through the actual experience have always been the ultimate criteria to which the church has reverted. The normative elements of our religion, however stated, are always traceable to the relations of the church to its founder. The successive developments of doctrine might be thus described as our religion functioning in the new situations set by dominant social minds for the purpose of making clear to successive generations the reality of that salvation which Jesus brings. Generic Christianity is, in fact, the gospel as it has developed under new social influences. It is thus not difficult to see, back of these successively organized doctrines, the elements which go to make up generic Christianity. Stated as far as possible without the doctrinal forms given them by successive social minds, they are as follows. 1. Men are sinful, and if they are to avoid the outcome of sin, in need of salvation by God. 2. The God of the universe is knowable as the God of love, who in 
personal self-expression seeks reconciliation with men. 3. God has revealed himself as Savior in the historical person, Jesus. 4. God comes into any human life that seeks him, both directly through prayer and service and indirectly through social organizations like the church, transforming it and making it in moral quality like himself. 5. The death of Christ is the revelation of the moral unity of the love and law of God. 6. Those who accept Jesus as the divine Lord and Savior constitute a community in special relationship with God. And 7. Such persons may look forward to triumph over death and entrance into the kingdom of God. These fundamentals of generic Christianity are not dependent upon the particular type of philosophy in which they have been adjusted to the needs of social minds. They are as old as the New Testament. As a growing religious inheritance, they have been constantly recast and reappreciated. Various social minds, in proportion as they have felt the need of the help one or all of them can give, have used their own vocabularies to express them. But even when the vocabularies themselves have in some cases grown unintelligible, the reality itself has continued to function. In the light of these facts, it seems inevitable, therefore, that if Christianity is to go on developing, these same fundamentals must be brought into contact with the dominant social mind of today. The Christianity of tomorrow will not be a new religion, nor will it be a merely reiterated, uncritically accepted orthodoxy. It will be a genetic development of those beliefs which have constituted the permanent elements in historical orthodoxy. The particular formulas in which this generic theology has been expressed do not function well with modern men. But that which they express, which is generic Christianity, is possessed of religious value and power. At one point we already see evidence of new doctrinal development. The religion of our modern world is already shaping up the social as well as the individual content of the eschatology of the original gospel message, as yet so imperfectly evaluated, and therefore so often literally presented. But this awaited doctrine of salvation, which our age, because of its new social passion, is the first clearly to need, and because of its more scientific understanding of man's nature and of its new social sympathies, is the first to grasp and attempt to organize in terms of life and society will be genetically the outcome of the generic Christianity of the past. It will mediate God to the individual in his personal sorrow and temptation, and also to the complex of individual activities we call societies. However much grander and richer it may become, generic Christianity tomorrow, as yesterday, will prove itself capable of satisfying the religious needs of a dominant social mind in terms and concepts, both individual and collective, which are furnished by that social mind. 
expressing itself in an enriched, genetically progressing and far-reaching way of life, it can have no other foundation than that which is laid, Jesus Christ our Lord. Any form of Christianity that is not in attitude and fundamental sympathies at one with the religious spirit of historical Christianity, in whatever way it may reject the philosophies or the dramatic pictures and analogies in which this spirit has been expressed, will be spiritually weak. End of chapter 2, part E. Reading by John Shorman, Winfield, Illinois. Chapter 2, part E.